Hey, we're in our study on uh, foundations. We're going to get into the, the uh, fifth one, actually. We've got one more, and it depends on how far we get tonight. Got a lot of ground we need to cover. Tonight, we're going to talk about resurrection. It's absolutely the keystone truth of the entire New Testament. All right, so we, we've gone over repentance from dead works. We've gone over faith towards God. We've gone over the different kinds of baptisms, all these foundations that Hebrews 6 lays out. Last week, we talked about laying on of hands. And this week we're going to talk about resurrection. Actually, it's, it's phrased resurrection from the dead. So, uh, and then we'll get to eternal judgment, Lord willing, next week. So this idea of resurrection is huge for us now. It's a huge uh, theme uh, or, or the theme of the New Testament, really. This is the truth that holds the whole Christian faith together, this idea of resurrection. It's based upon Jesus' resurrection and the hope of our, our resurrection as well. So if Jesus did not rise from the grave, then he's just another good guy killed by the bad guys. But if Jesus arose from the grave, then he's both Lord and Christ. So this, this, is, this is where we're going to go with all this. Let's start in John 20, and we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15 in just a moment. John chapter 20, I want to read the resurrection story. Now you can go over in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20 and 21. My personal favorite rendition of the resurrection of Jesus is in John 20 and 21. We're headed to John 20. All right, here we go. John 20. Let's read that together. Let me pull that up. All right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John chapter 20. Let's read all the way to verse 20. We actually read kind of lengthy part right here, but just kind of soak all this in. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. Now, this is after the crucifixion. Crucifixion happens in chapter 19. And notice how he said, now on the first day of the week, it's as if John is saying, uh, this is a whole new thing is starting now. A whole new, new idea. She went to the tomb while it was still dark, saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, and then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, which, which we believe is John himself, and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. The linen cloth would be the, the cloth that Jesus was wrapped in at, at his burial. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloth laying there, lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. That's kind of interesting details here. Now, the, now, now these details are, you know, some people have said they're Jewish customs that, you know, if, if I fold a napkin after dinner, that means I'll, I'll return. If I don't, you know, I'm not coming. Uh, those are just fables. Okay? Those are fables. They're not, they're not, they're things that just have developed over the years. It's not, they're not really Jewish customs. Um, but it's just interesting. Why would John tell us details like that? Because it really happened. These are details as, as he's describing this scene. This is what I saw, you know. All right. But folded together in a place by itself. Verse number eight. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. Well, that's interesting. John just immediately knew what happened, didn't he? 
Because where, where did John spend his last moments with Jesus? Where did he spend them? He was at the cross, wasn't he? He is the only one that did not take off and run, you know? Well, if, if it's John and he's writing this, why is he not saying me? I went to the tomb first and I ran in. I, I think it's just a literary device just to kind of keep your own self out of it and just kind of not be self-centered. This is about me kind of thing. I think he, he, he writes like that a couple different times in his letter, so... He's a disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, it's a, it just it's just an interesting thing to write in in another per, in a like a third person type deal. Um, I, I personally, I mean, I don't really know the answer to your question other than it just seemed like John didn't want it to be about him. You know. Oh, that's, that's, that's good. That's good. And it's always good to do that anyway. Plus, you never know who's going to read this later. Mm-hmm. So, or if they know who wrote it. Mm-hmm. And John saw and believed. I like, I like that idea. He saw and believed. And I, I, he, he's the, the disciple who literally saw Jesus die. You know? So, I mean, he, he's there, and now he sees this. I mean, he must have, he probably walked him to the tomb, saw him lay him in there. And then when he comes in, he's got a whole different experience than everybody else. He's like, oh man, he was right there. <laughs> he's resurrected just like he told us. All right, verse nine. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. They didn't, but John did, I believe. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet. Now think about that, one at the head and one at the feet. Kind of, if, if, this, was a, if this was like a cave in a tomb, there would be these, these uh, slabs that would be cut into the wall of the cave, and they would lay the bodies on the, cave, on, on the slab, let the body decay, and then a few months later they would come back and, and gather the bones and put them in these osha, what's called ossuary boxes. And then they would write the name of the deceased on there, and the family would keep it, and they would have little coffers inside the cave, and they would take the box and place it in the coffin, kind of like a mausoleum kind of thing, but they would take the bones with, with that ossuary box and put it there, and then they would use the slab again for the next family member that was in this particular tomb, okay? Now this tomb's never been used. It was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, remember? Okay. Now the two angels sitting at the head and the other at the feet. Is there anything else in the Bible that has an angel on one end of it and an angel on the other end of it? And I've actually never thought about this until I just saw it just now. Remember, how's the, what's on the Ark of the Covenant? You got, you got an angel on this side, an angel on this side. I believe that's kind of a description of what's happening. Something very holy is happening. This is, you know, whew, I like that. Probably there's a whole lot of stuff there with angels well, yeah. and stuff. <laughs> All right. Then, then they said to her, the angel spoke to her, woman, why are you weeping? That's an interesting question to talk about in a tomb, isn't it? Why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. 
Isn't that interesting? That's an interesting detail right there. She did not know, she didn't recognize him immediately. Okay? So, so what I gather from that is, is Jesus is the same Jesus, but there's something very different about his appearance. Okay? That's going to be important to our teaching a little bit later. Did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, uh, am I missing a detail here? Let's see. Now, one, one place says that, that she thought it was, he was the gardener. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it might be Matthew, I think. It might be Matthew supposing him the gardener. Uh, it's interesting that she would think he was a gardener because how, where does the Bible, what's that? Did, no, oh, did, I, did I skip over it? Okay, here, where's the next, next verse? Let's keep reading. The Bible works itself out if you just keep reading, right? <laughs> Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she supposing him to be the gardener. Okay, now how does the Bible start out? Starts out in the garden, doesn't it? And that, it's just interesting details here. It's like, it's like John is giving us little details and clues here. And he said to him, uh, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher, it was what most everybody called Jesus was teacher. He could have just been so distraught because even not recognizing his voice, mm-hmm. you know, I think maybe she was just so distraught that exactly. sometimes you just, the sense. It, it, exactly. You just get cloudy, cloudy of mind and, and heart and all that. But when did she recognize him? When, when he called her name. And that's when we recognize him too. Mm-hmm. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, what, what, what was the fear of the Jews? What were they, what would they have in their minds? Well, what just happened to Jesus is going to happen to us, you know. So it was a legitimate fear, you know. And Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them. Now, that, did you see that detail right there now? When the doors were shut where they were assembled for fear of the Jews. So that means that door was shut and locked. That's what that means. And Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Somebody said there's only one man-made thing in heaven. You know what they are? The scars in Jesus' hands and his side. It is interesting that he kept the scars even after the resurrection. You know, Maybe I, I, I would think everything else would be back to normal like his his face and you know some of the the, the blood and mm-hmm. yep well we'll get to that in just a moment he, he uh so he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were glad when they saw the lord now we could keep going and reading there but but let's move on to our to our uh, teaching here mm-hmm 
weird question. I've always kind of wondered that. When he said, do not cling to me, what mm-hmm. if she had laid hands on him? Yeah, I, I don't know that she would have defiled him, per se, because a lot of people touched Jesus and he transferred his goodness to their, their situation. So I don't think she would have had the power to, to harm him. I think it's just this mysterious thing, this mystical thing going on. It says that when Jesus died, he descended into the heart of the earth and went to Abraham's bosom and led captivity captive, led those who, were, who died in faith, preached the gospel to them, basically, and led them to the presence of God. Now, I believe that's where he was. He was there, and he was headed to the Father, and he made a stop back at the tomb to comfort his disciples. Um, and he, he had to ascend to the Father. This is just, it's just mysterious. He had to go to the Father, and then he returns back to come to their, the place where they were meeting together. So I, I think he's, he's like, I got some business I got to take care of. So don't, I can't, you can't hold me here. I don't, I mean, I've heard it preached. I don't know that it, that, that it sticks. I've heard it preached that she could, couldn't touch him because she would defile him and he would, had to be pure and holy as he ascended to, to the heavens, you know, the, 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 the presence of God, the true temple and all that. I, I don't know. I think he just had business to take care of that she had no idea and he couldn't explain it. <laughs> I got to go to my father. I'll be right back. So isn't it interesting though that as a glorified man, Jesus could ascend there and then boom back. That's kind of crazy. That may be why we have all these planets so we can do that when we get to heaven <laughs> when the time comes. Anyway, all right, go to First Corinthians 15. Let's look at a few of these scriptures here. And we'll get as far as we can in the notes. I can tell you right now we're not going to get all the way through it, so we'll probably pick it up again next week. Verse number three. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is uh, the resurrection chapter, okay? If you want to know some more about the resurrection, now some of it's a little dense. You've got to read through it slowly and, and think through it and kind of put your mind together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. It's where Paul explains the resurrection in detail about some of the things that's going to happen. He, he unfolds some mysteries, okay? Now, resurrection is, is with us all the time. You think about it, how everything operates. If, if did anybody eat supper tonight or last night and have a vegetable? Well, how did that vegetable start? It started as a seed that was buried in the ground. When it buried, it died, or what we call germinated, and it, it, it sheds its husk. And who would think that that seed that you would have in your hand would turn into a cucumber? I mean, who would think that? Who would think that that seed that you have in your hand would turn into a watermelon? So literally, really and truly, the principle of resurrection, we partake in it every single day. Everything that's alive we know of starts with a seed. It starts with very small, and then it transforms into something that's far different than what it started. Okay? So we participate in resurrection. You know another way we participate in resurrection every day? You go to sleep, and you enter into a... A, a, a basically a coma. You know, some of us go a little deeper than others. And you bury yourself in the covers. I mean, I'm not being coy here or silly, but you bury yourself in the covers and you sleep every night and then you are raised again every morning. That cycle is put into your body. It's put into your life to teach you about resurrection. You see what I'm talking about? We live with it all the time. Okay, And Paul talks about it, some of that kind of thing. We're not going to read all of 15, but let's just read some of it. Verse 3. 
Paul says this, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Okay? So the basic gospel is, I mean, if you could put the gospel in just a, a sentence, Christ died for our sins, and he rose again on the third day. That would be the good news because the good news is an announcement about an event that has taken place that affects the whole world and it affects your life as well. Okay? So the good news is that something has happened on your behalf and Christ did it. He died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. All right? Now, skip on down to, there's a lot of good stuff. I hate to skip through it, but we just don't have time. One, one day we'll go verbatim through 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, just pick it apart and spend several weeks on it. Uh, verse number, what's in the notes? What's the next scripture? Verse number 12? All right, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there were some people concerned about this teaching about resurrection. He said, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty or in vain or worthless, really. And your faith is also empty and vain and worthless. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise if in fact, Christ, if, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It's over for them. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Now what he's doing right here is telling you the importance of resurrection. If resurrection is not true, then we, we, we shouldn't even be gathering together. We sh yeah, we shouldn't. And, and he says if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, the most miserable. So our faith extends way beyond the grave from what we know and see and understand, really. It's not just for this life. It is for this life. There's a lot of good things God does for us. He blesses us. He cares for us. He, he, he walks with us every day. But it, that's not all there is. And if that, but if all we have is time, then you already know we're already getting older. We, we know that, that that's running out. Verse 20, he says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's continue to verse 21, and I think I'll stop. For since by man came death, who was that man where death came in? That was Adam, wasn't it? Genesis chapter 3. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now let's, let's do some, some teaching points here that, that may help us out here. Okay, So there's two main problems for humanity, and you get this from the Bible, and, and you can understand it with reality of life. The two primary problems that we have as humans, we've got a lot of problems, but the two primary ones are sin and death. That's our two primary problems. And Jesus takes care of both of these. He takes care of the sin problem on the cross where He dies for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And according to history, he dies for our sins, taking care of the sin problem. Jesus said, my blood I will shed for you for the remission or the forgiveness of your sins. And then he takes care of the death problem with his resurrection. And the interesting thing that, that God does with Christ and those who follow him 
is that what Jesus accomplishes by breaking the power of death over himself with resurrection, he extends that same blessing to you and I who believe and follow him. Okay? All right, let's go. So the resurrection, it's a verifiable fact of human history. Uh, there were witnesses there. The facts are recorded right there. If we were to keep reading in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, from about verse 5, it talks about the witnesses. Uh, but the whole trajectory of the Christian faith is built up on the resurrection of Jesus. Okay. The disciples were so convinced that Jesus was risen from the grave that they were absolutely willing to die for it. You realize that? And they did. They did. In fact, many believers did. Okay. All right. So now let's, let's, let's go over a few things here and get as far as we can. What happened at the resurrection? What happened at Jesus' resurrection? And we're just going to pull several truths out of the New Testament together and just kind of list them for you. The first thing was Jesus was supernaturally raised from the dead. He was supernaturally raised from the dead. Now, not a resuscitation. He was dead. He didn't come up a spirit or a ghost or some kind of spirit being. He bodily resurrected. Okay, that's really important. Okay, he resurrected. His body was given new life. Okay, he was not a, a spirit being. He was a glorified, what we would call a glorified man. And why is the resurrection so strange? Well, because the general rule is that dead people usually stay dead. That's kind of a general rule. I mean, Jesus is like the only one that that, that did not happen to. You know what I'm saying? Now, there's others that have been resurrected like Lazarus, but he, he resurrected to die again. You know, that kind of thing. But Jesus is the only one who is risen from the dead and remained alive. Okay. Now his body, this is important to us now, his body super, was supernatural but had physical properties. How do we know this? Well, the story tells us. Did you see some of the details we were gathering? When he, supernatural, the doors were shut and locked, what did he do? <laughs> Boom. Mary, you just asked the question about Mary holding on to him. He, he was there. Uh, she obviously could have grabbed him, but he had to ascend to his father and he came right back. That's supernatural. Now, I, I can't even, yeah. I can't even, that's, my words can't even mix up right to explain that. You know what I'm talking about? In fact, they did. Remember? They did touch him. Remember Thomas? When Thomas, yeah. he, 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 he did what we call doubting Thomas. He, he, wouldn't, he was not at that meeting that we just saw. He was not there. So later on, he has an encounter with Jesus, and Thomas was like, I, I, I can't believe it. I mean, he, he's gone, y'all. He's gone. We know he's dead. I'll, I'll only believe if I, if I see him myself and touch him, and, and Jesus just stepped right in front of him and said, here you go. Boom. <laughs> I bet he was. I bet. You know, you think about that. Exactly. I've lost you one time. You know, I don't want to lose you again kind of thing. But he could be touched. He could be seen. He talked to them. He had scars. He ate. Nearly every time we see him with the disciples, he eats with them. Okay? That's why we gather together and eat a lot as a church, because we just want to be like Jesus. <laughs> he walked through walls. He ascended into heaven. I mean, it's, there's this combination of supernatural and physical properties. It's, it's, it's very strange. He was very similar. Notice the details we just read in John 20. She did not immediately recognize him, and then she, oh, yeah, it's you. 
you know? So he was similar, but incredibly different all at the same time, you know? This is what the scripture is identifying for us, the state called glorified. You've heard that before? You know, we go, that, that's, that's what we got waiting on us. It's when God literally glorifies our bodies, okay? Now, he's going to glorify your body. I don't know what you're going to look like, but all the aches and pains and all the bruises and all the things that are there and all the problems we have with our physical body will be gone away with. And just like Jesus, we will have supernatural characteristics or abilities and we'll also have physical properties. I don't understand how all this is going to happen, but he's the, if I can use this term, he's the prototype, you know? All right, here we go. Second thing that happened at the resurrection is a new age or a new era began. Time hinges on what happened with the cross and the resurrection. Time, in fact, men have split the calendar accordingly. Okay, in, in Western society, we split the calendar because we know that all of history pivots on this idea of Jesus being resurrected. What the Bible calls, you've heard people say, are we living in the last days? Well, absolutely. Biblically, the idea of the last days started when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That's when it started. Because Peter immediately gets up on the day of Pentecost. Say immediately, 50 days later, he gets up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches and says, these are the last days. You know, so the, the, the Bible uses the idea of last days to talk about this era that started at the resurrection. Okay, It's also called the era of the new covenant or the age of the new covenant. Jesus said that a new covenant would start, right? This is the new covenant that I will make with my blood. Okay, Hebrews also calls it a new and living way. And I wish we had time to look at all these scriptures, but we just don't. Okay, We'll, we'll do some of this later in great detail. The third thing that happens is, is that Jesus' teachings and claims were verified by the resurrection. They were backed up by God at the resurrection. It's like it's as if the resurrection was the exclamation point that was to tell the world to say, listen to my son, hear him, you know. So the resurrection teaches us that everything he said is truth. Everything he did is established. Everything he claimed to be is true. Now, Jesus made some audacious claims now. I mean, audacious claims. I mean, claims that everybody that was listening to him were like, uh, really? <laughs> you know, I'm serious. I mean, this man talked about he's, he's God in the flesh, basically. He said it many, many times, talking about him being a man, but yet being divine. He said it in a lot of Jewish and Hebrew ways, using biblical picture and imagery. But when he says, I'm the bread of life that's come down from heaven, I mean, he basically is saying right there, I'm, I'm divine. I, just like Moses God's feeding you with me now. You know, so those are pretty audacious, you know. I, we would have a hard time now. I'm serious. If, if, if Jesus was, if we were in Bible days, all of us would have had a hard time digesting all the things he was saying and doing. You, we would have all perked up like, um, we, have to some evidence we might need to hit, we, we need to listen to this guy. And we would meet in rooms just like this and say, uh, you know, that guy was teaching down there last week. Did y'all see what happened with that lady that was over there? That's pretty impressive. And then somebody over here would say, well, yeah, but, you know, I, I, I'm not so sure this is some kind of hocus pocus stuff. You know, all that was going on in those days. You know. All right. Verse, uh, number four. Fourth thing. The resurrection of Jesus is the declaration that he is the Lord and rightful king of the earth. That he is the Lord and rightful king of the earth. 
In fact, when, when the book of Revelation is written, it, it says these, it gives us a lot of images about Jesus being on the throne and things like that. But it describes him in, in chapter one that he is the one that possesses the keys of death, hell, and the grave. That he holds the keys. That, that's who's speaking in this book called the Revelation, who's being represented in this book called Revelation. It also represents him as who was, who is, who is to come. Now you look at it, look at it. Who was, that's past, right? Who is is present, who is to come, that's future. So basically he's saying, I'm the ancient of days or I'm the eternal one, right? I'm the Lord and King of the earth. All right, let's go over to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 8. Let's read that real quick. Paul gets this idea about Jesus being, being the king of the earth. This is what he says about Jesus. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. When did he exalt him? At the resurrection. Okay. And given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you got this, this idea that every knee, I mean, Jesus is, is the king of the earth. It's, it's not Caesar who would have been in Bible days. It's not our politicians. It's not, uh, uh, it's not the enemy. It's not Satan himself. Jesus is the king of the world. And what's going to happen one day is that every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that you are the rightful king of all. You are the Lord of all. Now, I may, I may have mentioned this to you in, in times past coming through here in Philippians 2. Is God going to knock everybody down and say, boom, y'all recognize him as king? <laughs> it's possible. He could do that, certainly. I personally think what's going to happen in those moments when Jesus manifests himself, there's going to be no mistaking who he really is. And that everybody is going to hit the deck and say, you are Lord. Because it, so here's, the, here's the deal. If the world could just see, if anybody could see, all of us individually could see, all of us collectively could really see who Jesus is, Paul is saying that what you would do is you'd bow your knee to him. The reason people are doing their own thing, living in sin and doing all that kind of stuff, they haven't seen who Jesus really is because they've fallen for a counterfeit in sin and all kinds of their own desires. They've fallen for the counterfeit. Something else, whether it's themselves maybe, is Lord of their life and they're bowing their knee to something else. But when you see Jesus for who he really is, you'll bow your knee and you'll speak. You know, see. All right. So that's going to happen one day. It'd be good if it was today. <laughs> you, you probably don't want to wait to that moment. You probably want to do it now if you get a chance. Verse or number five, the fifth thing that happened at the resurrection. We might get through some of this. <laughs> at the resurrection, Jesus destroyed the devil and the power of death. Okay. Now he didn't eradicate the enemy. Okay. Now, obviously, he's still working, doing his thing. But the Bible does portray the idea that Jesus defeated our adversary at the resurrection, at the cross and the resurrection. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Through death, Jesus might destroy him, the enemy, that had the power of death, that is, the devil. 
So something real supernatural happened that Jesus literally broke the power of death. Okay, now the next one's going to kind of unfold some of this for us. Okay, the sixth thing that happened at the resurrection is Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of the resurrection for all who believe in him. Okay, a lot of New Testament truth on this. Okay, we, we, could, we could look at passage after passage on this. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee that all who believe in him will be resurrected just like he was. That death will not have the final say. Just like it didn't have the final say over him, it won't have the final say over us. Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, that's kind of a loaded word. If it says first fruits, what does that imply? Okay, now if we're, if we're farmers and we're, we're going to give God a, a tenth of our sweet potatoes, we're going to pay tithes on our sweet potatoes. And we give that as a first fruit offering. What does that imply? That's the first of what I've got and the first and the best. And I still have a whole nother harvest, right? So it's implying that Jesus is the first of a harvest that is going to take place at the end of the age. Okay. You can look at Acts 26, 1 Corinthians 15. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about this idea of first fruits. And it's also no coincidence that Jesus actually resurrected on the day on the Jewish calendar called the day of first fruits. Okay, it's no, no accident there. Okay. Jesus is also called the firstborn from the dead. So if he's the firstborn, what does that also imply? That there's going to be a, at least a secondborn. There's more coming, right? There's more coming. So here's the, here's the idea. Jesus is the firstborn. From, he's the first person that this, something like this idea of resurrection, he's the first person this has ever happened to. But the guarantee is that it will happen to all who believe in him and call upon his name. All right. Now go, go over to Hebrews 10, or excuse me, Hebrews 2, verse 10, and we're going to read 10 and 14 and 15. Hebrews 2. Mac, you okay over there, buddy? <laughs> All right, we just read some of, of, of 10. Let's, let's read the rest of it, and then we'll skip down to, uh, what was it, uh, 14 and 15? Yeah, okay. Verse number 10, Hebrews 2. For it was fitting for him, for Jesus, for whom all are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And that's one of the mysteries of the cross, right? He, he's bringing many sons to glory. That's us, right? He's going to bring... All right, let's skip down. I hate to skip all that, but just for time's sake, go to 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Shared in the same what? In, in flesh and blood, right? Jesus became flesh and blood just like us. That through death, so he became flesh and blood so he could do this, Okay that he could pass through death so he could destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. I mean, he really came. I mean, when, when, when the angels come and, and the prophecies come over Jesus' life, that he is the savior of the world, he has in mind that he's saving us from those two problems that we've got. The sin problem, he will save his people from their sins, and he's going to rescue us from this death problem. He's going to be resurrected. And according to Hebrews 2 right here, he literally became flesh and blood so that he could die in order to break the power of death. Now, how could he break the power of death 
The only way he could break it was he was sinless. Because the wages of sin is death. So, so in, a, in a technical sense, the enemy kind of killed him illegally. If, if we got technical with all that, he killed him illegally. He wasn't, he, wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't supposed to die like all men die because of sin. Okay, he died for a different reason. He died, this is what he did. He died so that he could pass through death and then come out on the other side and take the sting out of it. Okay. It was 15. And this is what else. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So there's another benefit here of the resurrection that, that literally that Christ wants to come into our life in such a way for us to bear witness of his resurrection, the guarantee of our own resurrection, so that the very fear of death is broken off of us. I mean, what is the greatest fear that we have as humans? It's the fear of dying, you know? I mean, boy, has that really kind of shown its head in the last eight months we've been dealing with all this stuff. I mean, why would people lock down like we've been locked down? Well, they don't, they don't want to die. Well, here, nobody wants to die. We shouldn't want to die anyway. Oh, boy, said, I'm, I'm ready and willing. I just ain't going to volunteer, <laughs> you know? But here, here's a great benefit when you begin to believe the gospel to the depths of what it is that you literally are no longer afraid to die. Now, you, you love your family. You've got work you want to accomplish, things you want to do with your life. We'd all like to live to a ripe old age and be healthy and wealthy and wise, right? But what he wants to do in our life, whether we die young or whether we die old, he wants to break the very fear that keeps us in bondage. And when you understand the idea of resurrection, it breaks that fear right off of you. I'm just reminded of my friend Jim when he died. I've never seen a man die as courageously as he did. He literally, I mean, he knew he was only in his mid-60s. He got cancer and he was a great, great elder in the church, a wonderful man, my best buddy. Everyday talking kind of friend. And he, uh, he got cancer and it, next thing you know, he had, had some back pain. It was in his spine and boom, it spread every diff, different ways and it was, he's eat up. So we're there at his bedside, and I'm praying for his healing. I mean, I don't want Jim to die. I don't want Jim. He grabbed me. He said, it's my time. The Lord has shown me it's my time. I said, well, I don't care what he showed you, Jim. <laughs> we ain't letting you go, man. And we're all, it's a, it's, it's a very emotional ball and mess time, you know, except for him. He said, it's my time. He said, I, I, I need y'all to be at peace with it. I'm okay. And not too long after that, Jim slipped off into the arms of Jesus. And, and I can't even describe, and my, my words won't let me describe what I felt in those moments from the sense of peace from him. I mean, I, I mean we went to minister to him and comfort him and, and the peace that he had because of this, because the fear was broken off and he was not afraid to die at all. All right, let's keep going. We're almost done. There's a whole lot there, isn't it? So the good news is about what God has accomplished through Christ in the past and what he will do through Christ in the future. The time will not permit for us to talk about all the things the resurrection has 
has given to us, imparted to us, or released for us to have. But there's a phrase in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, death will be swallowed up in victory. I, I, I say it like this. There will be a day when life swallows up death. Revelation 20 talks about that. It, I think that's there, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. It talks about that the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. And that will be a great, great day. Won't you be glad? I mean, all the stuff we hear swirling around right now, that's all going to be gone one day. Okay. That, that's part of the good news. That because of what Jesus has accomplished for us, there will come a day when life will swallow up death. Right now, it feels like death is winning. It, it wins on everybody, it seems. I mean, you just buried your father. I mean, my goodness. Uh, and, and some of you buried spouses and, and loved ones. And all of us have buried loved ones. Once we get to this age, we've all buried somebody we, we care about deeply. But there will be a day when life will swallow up death and death will no longer even have an activity to do anymore. It'll be gone. It'll be defeated. Okay. I, I do have time. Let, let's read this. Let's read Revelation 21. 1 through 4. Revelation 21. I highly recommend from time to time that you do, do this practice. Take some time, read Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. And just read those two together. They're the kind of the bookends of the Bible. This is the Garden of Eden where everything was good and the way it's supposed to be. All the things that happened from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20 is all the problems that sin and all the chaos has caused and all the adversaries caused. All that in the book. All this all getting worked out and messed up and stirred up again all over. Everybody's life is all jacked up all the way from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, isn't it? It's, it's really bad. But in Revelation 21, it turns. It's the hope that Jesus, because of his resurrection, is going to make everything brand new. Okay? So we've got the picture of it being good here. We've got the picture of it being real bad and we can just look in the mirror for that one too, by the way. And then we got the portrait of what's going to happen. See, what this is in Revelation 21 is when resurrection plays out all the way across the cosmos, all the way across creation. Okay, Because see, Jesus is not just interested in saving your soul. He wants to redeem your body and he is going to redeem this earth. I mean, his creation, this earth is his creation. I mean, it's... it's it's like you gave a kid a real valuable thing and they took it and, and twisted it up and destroyed it into something different and you take it back and you recreate it the way it's supposed to be. That's what's happened to this planet. I mean, all from everything possible has gone wrong and chaotic. Now, this is where resurrection's taken us. This is where our master's taken us. Verse number one, 21. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, Peter gives us a little bit of idea that, that it, it, it catches fire, <laughs> okay? You've heard the old song, it won't be water, but fire the next time. You know, God's not going to destroy the earth with water, but he's not going to destroy it with fire either. Now, listen to me. When the Bible uses the idea of fire, fire is what God uses to purify everything. So he's going to cause his creation to pass through the fires of his judgment, and when it comes out on the other side, it's going to be like silver that passes through a fire that all the dross is, is pulled off of it. 
and what remains is, is good, right? Okay. The first earth and, and had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Mm. No more sea. What, what's up with that? Well, I had a geologist tell me what that meant. I had a lady in my church who was graduated from Georgia Tech. She was a geologist. And she said, I, I had no idea. I said, that's kind of disappointing, all these guys that go deep sea fishing. They're not going to be able to fish in the sea no more. But the Bible does talk about fresh water in heaven. You know, so there, there would be water in heaven. But why no more sea? No more sea. And she said, here's just a thought. You know what the seas of the oceans are? They are the filters of the earth for all the impurities that are on the planet. It all runs to the seas. Okay, so all the environmentalists just talk about all the garbage in the ocean. Well, that's really what it's for. Now, we don't need to overdo that and do it the wrong way. But that's really what the oceans and seas are for, to filter out all the impurities. Okay, they, they take part in some of that. Okay, so why would there be no more sea? There's no need for that because everything's pure and holy again and right and good. Okay, it's just an interesting detail. I, she made my day when she told me that many years ago. I had no clue. <laughs> then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So there's this oneness and unity that comes back between God and humanity. Okay? Here's what I want you to see in verse 4. This is what resurrection is going to do. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more tears. No more crying. The reason there's no more tears, no more crying is because there's nothing else to cry about. That's a good day, isn't it? There shall be no more death. That's a great day. No more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. Pain in the soul, pain in the body, pain in relationships, pain wherever it might be. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. He did away with them. That's, that's our future hope. We're, we're longing for that day. And, and whenever I stand at gravesides, I like to read that passage, even if I just read it myself. One day, Lord, you're going to take away death. You're going to take away sorrow and crying. No more pain. We look to that day. You know what I'm talking about? That'd be a great day, won't it? So that's where resurrection is taking us. That's the idea. Jesus was resurrected, will be resurrected, and all of his creation will be, if I can use the terminology, will be resurrected as well into the newness of life that he intended. 